This is City Post Church. We're about three things. Build, equip, and send. All under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. A small church plant in Fort Worth, Texas. Who decided to do things a little differently. Adoramos a Jesucristo. I love City Post because of the people. It's where I belong. We truly preach the word. I love City Post because of the community we've been able to build. To do ministry like Jesus, for light to push back darkness. This is City Post Podcast. We're going to be in uh, John chapter 1. So go ahead and get to that, John. John chapter 1. So uh, Christmas has officially come to the Cotto household. Man, we put up the tree. About, it's, it's about 45% right now, but the tree is out. We are doing Christmas. Um, and one of, the, one of the things that we started doing, and this is something when we talk about different cultures, is that um, there's something called an elf on a shelf. Anybody familiar with this? Kind of sorry if people are like, <laughs> WPS. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> inside joke. Uh, so, <laughs> um, so we started something called Elf on the Shelf with Elena, and just to kind of give you guys what this is, an Elf on the Shelf is that this, this little elf comes in the mail, and it wreaks havoc in your home. So whenever you go to sleep at night, you don't know what's going on with the elf. And um, so Elena's super thrilled. She gave the elf a name. And at night, so me and Rach started trying to decide, like, what we want to do with this elf. Like, how does this elf want to show out? And then the elf, like, does something. And then in the morning when you wake up, the elf is, like, digging through your cookies. Um, you know, the first thing Rach did was she put the elf in, 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 a, in a pool with all the Barbies. And she's like, the elf went to the Barbie house. And I was like, oh, the elf is a player. Like, that doesn't look good. <laughs> And then, you know, the second one was, um, you know, the elf made some waffles and, and ate some waffles. And then, like, yesterday the elf was trying to hang some ornaments, but his foot got stuck. So he, he woke up, like, hanging out. And Elena wakes up, and she's like, oh, my God, we can't believe. Look what the elf did. So she thinks it's just like, for real, for real. Now, some of y'all are looking at me like, well, Ricky, isn't like Christmas like, you know, Jesus is the reason. Yeah, that, thank you, Captain Obvious. We know that, right? Um, and then, you know, but, but we're having fun with this. And then some of you guys are like, no, nah, like, you got to tell your kids the truth. Like, listen, like, you got, some, some of y'all, like, used to listen to, like, Walter Mercado back in the day. And some of you guys used to still think, like, um, you know, just because you're a vert, vertigo, you don't get along with Pisces. If y'all believe that, let me have Elf on the Shelf, all right? So... Yes, yeah, like nobody, because you're pious, it's because you're annoying. All right, so, uh, so, so we have these things, and, um, and we're having so much fun with it. And it's funny, because Rach and I, so what we do is that we think about ways to kind of change the narrative of this elf. We get to kind of shift him. We get to create situations um, with this elf to see the reaction that Elena gets. And I think sometimes we do the same thing when we think of who Jesus is. Many of us take the name of Christ. Many of us take the understanding of who Jesus is, and we, we shift it. We change the narrative. 
Um, like a lot of us think, well, Jesus is here to just make sure that I'm good and to make sure that I get the job I want and make sure that, that he gives me if I sow something that I'm going to get more into it. Or he's, he's here to make sure he takes care of me and mine. So we change the narrative of it. We change the situations of it. We tend to shift it and, and shape it. And, and we just kind of don't even look at what the, what the uh, Bible says. And that's not the way it works. Because the honest truth is, who is Jesus? Jesus is God. And that's what we're going to look at today. The apostle John, or the disciple John, he wrote in John chapter 1, like he got to hang out with Christ. He got to meet with him. He got to see him heal. He got to do all these things. And it almost became like this obsession for John. And John writes in his book that Jesus is God. Jesus is deity. He's 100% man. And he's 100% God. And then John would also deal with the Gnostics because the Gnostics thought that, yeah, Jesus is God, but he would have to separate from his humanity. And John's like, no. So what we're going to look at today is that John is going to give an argument. He's going to give proof. He's going to really push the whole fact that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. And not just that, but he is Emmanuel, which is God with us. How awesome is that? From the whole, the whole story of the Bible is that theme, God with us. With Adam and Eve, God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in Exodus. God shows up in the tabernacle with Moses. He shows up in Mount Sinai. Um, you could just look at all these examples in the Old Testament. And now everything is God with us. He comes down from heaven, steps into flesh, and in the person of Jesus reveals himself. So with many other cultures and traditions, they celebrate memories. They, sell, they, they go to the gravesite and they do you know, stuff to like celebrate the memory and the death of the deity that they used to serve. But not us. We celebrate that our God is alive. And he's alive and he's living all for eternity. So uh, while other belief systems are still hanging out at the gravesite. We are celebrating because of an empty grave. Right? So like so we are excited about this and John is obsessive to make sure that we know this. So look at first I mean just read John. I was like first John. Uh, John and we're going to look at just a couple of verses 14 through 18. I'm going to read it for us and then let's walk through it. John 1:14 says The word became flesh and made its dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, thank you for this truth. Lord, help us to understand uh, just your word, the riches of it. And help us to see Jesus in all these things. In your name we pray all these things. Amen. Awesome. Let's go ahead and let's jump in. Look at verse 14. 
So immediately John is, is kind of coming out. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. Now, in the beginning of the book of John, we see that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So look at in verse 14, the word word it actually has an uppercase, which means it is a, a noun. It's a person, place or thing. He is he's saying that Jesus became flesh, the word of God, the eternal Christ became flesh. And there, this reality is so profound for us as Christians because he took the infinite and he made it finite. He took the eternal and it conformed to time. He took the invisible and made it visible. He, he reduced the supernatural one to the natural one himself. And he was incarnated in flesh with the word and it moved in. That word um, dwell actually means to tabernacle. It's like whenever you go camping, anybody here go camping? I go glamping, right? I'm like, why a tent? I got a hotel, right? All right, so you're like, boo. <laughs> it's like, man, come on, right? So it's like, so when you go camping, you bring everything. You bring your tent, you bring coolers of food, you bring your sleeping bags, you bring your clothes, you bring everything you need to stay at that one location, to live there, to be a part of that location for however much time you're going to be there for. And that's what he's saying. It's like Jesus didn't just show up and go. No, he showed up and he set up shop. He moved in. He dwelt amongst. He set up his tabernacle. He set up the tent and he lived amongst the people. Jesus was 33 years old when he passed. He started his ministry at the age of 30. That means that for 30 years, he was a child. He was a teenager. He knew what it was like. He had emotions. He had hormones. He, he was tired. He was hungry. He lived the same life that you and I lived in our humanity. So what's interesting about this, look at verse 14 again. It says that the word became flesh. Now, this term flesh, what we see in Scripture is that the word flesh is either used in morality or it's used in physicality. So we, we say things like, man, like I have to die to my flesh. I, I, I'm, I'm living in my flesh. I'm, I'm sinning because of my flesh. That, that's the whole spiritual side to it. That's the whole like moral side to it. But then there's a physical sense to it. Like we see in Romans 1, 3, it says Jesus is the son of David according to the flesh. So he's speaking from the perspective of human. So Jesus came down to earth, he took on human form. The eternal God becomes part now of his own creation. He's walking amongst his creation. And one other thing, because I know some, some, there's some scholars who, who kind of disagree a little bit with this. This is not post-fall humanity. A lot of people are like, well, Jesus came as human form, but, you know, he was without sin because before sin hit the world, there was no sin. And I was like, no, like Jesus lived in a world broken as a human. The only difference was that he never sinned. He was sinless. He had to be sinless. Right. So so Jesus was became man. He experienced everything. You and I. That's why in Hebrews it says that we serve a high priest that understands us. He knows what we're going through. Which is beautiful, but he never sinned. So his human nature does not overpower his deity. 
right? It actually complements it. So Jesus, being 100% man and 100% God, came out and now he's living here on this earth and he lives a perfect life. And we know that he lived in a broken world because he lived, he died, and he was buried. If, if it was a sinless world, there would be no death. But we know that he suffered and died for our sins. All right, so what John's going to do now, he's claiming that Jesus is deity. He's claiming that Jesus is God. And then now he's going to give some reasoning to prove that Jesus is God. And there's going to be three things that John is going to point out in this text. The first thing he's going to point out is Jesus' divine glory. Jesus' divine glory. The second thing he's going to show us is how Jesus dispenses grace. He's constantly dispensing grace to all of us. And then the third thing he's going to wrap this thing up with is that Jesus demonstrates God. That Jesus is going to demonstrate God. So look at what, so he's saying God in the flesh. He walked amongst us. He lived amongst us in human form. He suffered like us. He had the same exact feelings like us, except he never sinned. And then look at verse 14, what it says next. And then it says, we have seen his what? His glory. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. So we have seen his glory. Jesus is displaying his glory. Now, for us to understand this, we have to think back in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, God would show his glory in different ways. And some of you guys are like, well, Ricky, what does that even mean? What is glory anyway? I'm glad you asked. So glory is defined. So glory, the glory of God is the complex of all his attributes. And sometimes it manifests itself in blazing light. So if you think about all the attributes of God all in one singular package, that is the glory of God. So when when uh, Moses is with God in Exodus 33 and Moses asks God, say, God, show me your glory. And God's like, I would, but it would destroy you. I can't show you my glory. It, it, you would be evaporated. So what I am going to do is I'm going to show you the edges of my glory. So I'll, I'm going to let you look as I pass by you so that way you don't die. That, that's the, the power of the glory of God. God says no one has ever seen my, my face and live to tell about it. It's impossible. And then we see once the tabernacle set up, God reveals himself and shows himself as a blazing like light, as a, like a blazing furnace. It comes from heaven and it, and it consumes the tabernacle, the presence of God. And we talked about this last week, the Shekinah glory. Like it just takes over. So we see it as a fiery flame at night. And what John is getting to here is saying that Jesus is revealing the glory of God. He's saying that Jesus is showing everyone the wonderful attributes of God himself. You see, in the past, you had God in the tabernacle, the blazing fire of God, the glory of God that came to consume the tabernacle with his presence. 
Now, in Revelation, it says that when Jesus comes back in a new heaven and a new earth, it says that there will be no need for the sun because his glory is going to be what um, his glory is going to be what illuminates the world. We don't need the sun anymore. We have God's glory. So between the past, the glory of God, and in the future, the glory of God, we have Jesus, which is the present, the glory of God. So Jesus came flesh, and he's walking amongst us, and he is illuminating the glory of God in our presence even today. How do we know we get to see God's glory? Because of the attributes that we get to see in Jesus. Jesus even let the disciples see a little bit of that glory in the, tra- the story of the transfiguration where the disciples are kind of creeping and they're looking and Jesus shows up and he pulls his humanity back just a little bit and the disciples' reaction is like, oh my God, we're going to die. <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's like when you hear these stories about people like that say like, oh yeah, I died, I went to heaven and I came back. Or like I saw the light and I ran right towards it. I see something totally different in scripture because when God reveals his glory, when there is that, sh- that fiery light, people don't run toward it. People crumble and they're terrified for their lives. So when God shows up, it's like I'm a dead man. That's in Isaiah. We saw that in John when he sees Revelation. Every time people get a little glimpse of God's glory, they're like, we're all dead here. It's a terrifying thing because we are sinful. But when we go to eternity, if you guys are followers of Christ, you get to be in heaven. There's no more fear anymore because you're going to be perfect. I know it's a whole other sermon, but you're going to be able to partake in the glory of God in that supernatural realm. So Jesus is walking. He's showing his glory to everyone. We saw he's talking about the past and the future, but the present is found in Christ. And it says, who came from the Father full of what? Grace and truth. So he's immediately pointing that Jesus is not, we're going to see the next verse. Jesus is not about the law. He's about grace and truth. That means that Jesus, God's word is absolute truth. It's not relative. It's not about what you think it means. No, the word of God is absolute truth. It's what God says. That's why we preach it the way it is. That's why we follow it, because this is exactly the truth of God. And we're going to do what, exactly what it says. Now, John does something really smart here because he knows his audience. So he's telling them, he's like, man, Jesus, he's God. He's real. He's deity. He's God in the flesh. He walked amongst us. Like we get to see the glory of God through him. And in that glory comes from the Father. So he's making the connection. And he's like, and by the way, not just the glory, but also truth and grace follow him. Then in verse 15, what he does is that he throws in John the Baptist and he throws in his eyewitness account. Because he knows that the people he's talking to know the Old Testament. And what the Old Testament says, that in Deuteronomy, if something is to be truthful, you got to have at least two to three witnesses. This is, this, this is all throughout Scripture. So in verse 15, he pulls out the witnesses. Look what it says. John testified concerning him. Who's him? Christ. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. So he's like, what he's saying is if you don't have witnesses, then you're lying. 
If you don't have someone else that says, I saw the same exact thing, then you are making up a story. Let's ask Joseph Smith that. There is nobody else that could claim that they saw exactly what he saw. But some, some weird religion came out of that. And there's tons of people that follow it. He's like, no, man, there's witnesses here. That's why when Jesus ascended, it said that there was over 500 witnesses that saw it. Guys, this is real. So John is pulling in the witness card. He's like, listen, this ain't just me. This ain't a me thing. Other people have experienced the glory of God, the truth and the grace of God. Then he's going to go into a place of grace because he's going to talk about the law. Remember, he's talking to the Old Testament heads like the Pharisees and the Sadducees here and the Gnostics. Look at verse 16 and 17. He goes, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in the place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So he's saying that, that Jesus is not just deity, like God in the flesh, but he's also this super abundance of grace that is played out by God toward mankind. I love uh, Ephesians 1. Chapter 5, um, verse 5, or let's start verse 4, verse 4 through 8. It says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his measure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance to the riches of God's what? Grace that he lavished on us. Man, grace is given and poured out from God to us. Jesus is the superabundance of grace. How do we know? Because of the law. You see, the law was given to Moses but in Jesus, grace and truth have, have come through. Like, what are you talking about? Isn't the law a good thing? Yes, but God's grace is through Jesus Christ. The law came as a demand of holiness from a holy and righteous God. The, what the law shows you and I is that it's impossible for you to keep God's perfect law. The law is here to point you to a savior. Because there's no way you could do that. He's like, man, thou shalt not kill. Well, I've never killed anybody. Yeah, did, did you think about killing them? Did you think about doing bad stuff to them? Well, yeah. But I didn't act on it. And what Jesus says, like, anytime you think about it, you're committing sin. Same thing. Like, I didn't cheat on my wife. I didn't cheat on my girlfriend. Yeah, but did you think of another, like, have you thought about something? Well, you just committed adultery. The standard of God is so high that there's no one that's going to be able to achieve it. It's impossible. And you're like, well, Ricky, then what do we do? God points us to a savior. Jesus comes and says, you don't have to do anything. I'll do the work. So what Jesus does, he takes your sin and mine. He puts it on his back. He goes to the cross, dies for it, becomes a propitiation. So that means that it is, it's God's pleasing gift for our sin. And you and I are now forgiven and able to live a life of freedom. It's out of Romans 3.19. So the reality is 
moving forward. Yeah, Moses pointed to the law, but here is Christ who's pointing to grace and truth. And you see what the law says, like people used to live in the law. The law was constant threats, warnings, death, and judgment. So as I'm living my Christian life, as I'm trying to follow God, and some of us, man, we've experienced this. It's constant threats. It's constant judgment. You didn't. How come you didn't? Why don't you dress that way? Why don't you say it that way? Why didn't you say your prayers? Why didn't you read the Bible? Everything is pointing at you, saying you did it, you did it, you did it. And what Jesus shows up and says, don't worry about it. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. You see, that, that's the difference here. The law has all these things. Jesus shows up and it's grace and more grace and more grace and more grace. He drowns us in his grace. Grace is what we don't deserve. But Jesus says, I took it on the cross so that way you could be free. So whenever we do fall into sin, we are covered by his grace. And that's great news for somebody in here. That is great news. It's freeing. It's awesome. Well, then some of you are like, well, Ricky, what about the Old Testament? How do you explain grace in the Old Testament? It's like, it's easy. Noah was shown grace. God allowed him to survive. Jonah was shown grace. Even though he ran from God, God allowed him to live. He got swallowed by a big fish, but he lived to tell about it. Rahab was shown grace. Jacob, man, I mean, who, who wrestles with God and leaves just with a limp and lives to tell about it? Like God could have evaporated him with just, like he just spoke and he would have been gone, but yet he wrestled with God and God allowed him to live. He just touched his hip now he has a limp now for life that's grace and you and I we continue to fail God we we sin against God we make promises that we don't keep and God allows us to continue to serve him God continues to forgive us God continues to restore us God continues fill in the blank and listen that is grace we get his grace Man, if you don't remember anything about today, we get his grace. And that is who Jesus is. And then the last piece of this is in verse 18. So we saw that we saw God's divine glory. Now we just saw that that God in the flesh is a dispenser of grace. No one else is able to give that much grace unless it's been paid for. And Jesus paid the ultimate price. So that means that it doesn't run out. It's already covered. And now what we're going to see is that he's going to demonstrate a deity. He's going to demonstrate God. Look at verse 18. It says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. I love this. And in other translations, it says that it's, it's closest um, to the bosom, of, the bosom of the father. So like having like a baby real close by. I know whenever, um, for you guys that have kids, you might understand this. But when Elena was born, they said one of the most important things is skin to skin. So I was like, okay. So they're like, all right, take your shirt off. I'm going to put the baby right here on your chest. It's that, that closeness. Even if you look at the, the closer translations, it's like, it's, it's like saying that everything falls into a pocket. That's how close it is. Jesus is that close with the Father that it is bosom 
to, to, to like a skin to skin. Jesus is like in the pocket with his dad. It's super close. And then look at the end of this. I, I love this. This is in closest relation with the father. And it says, has made him known, has made him known. So what that word explained is um, in the there's a Greek word for this. It's called exegema. Hold on. Ex, let me slow down. Exegeomai. Yeah. Exegeomai. There it is. Sorry, I didn't take Greek. I'm trying to read it right here. All right. Exegeomai. And that is the Greek word that we see in this passage at the end of it. Exegeomai is where we get the word exegesis from. So in seminary, you study how to exegete a passage. And what, what that means is that you take a passage from the Bible and you explain it word for word. You explain the interpretation of it. You explain every bit of that sentence and every bit of that passage. And what the word of God is saying is that Jesus is the exegesis of God. So if you want somebody to say, well, explain to explain to me, God, then I'm able to say Jesus. This is the interpretation of God. This is who God is. This is if you were to dissect everything, every attribute about God, Jesus. And the passage is saying that he's saying that Jesus is the exegete. Oh, I of God. When, when you exegete God, you get Jesus. If you want a better picture of God, you look at Jesus. We talked about this, about the selfie. You explain like, hey, look who this is. This is me. That's exactly what God is saying about Jesus to us. So if you want to know God, we have Jesus because Jesus is God. So how would you explain God? Easy. Look at Jesus. That's what the passage says. He has made him known to us. So many of us, we experience when people say, yeah, Jesus was a nice man. He was a good teacher. Man, he was a wise prophet. He was a noble religious leader. He even healed some people. I was like, no, like, don't come at me with that. Jesus is God, period. And that's exactly what John is getting to here. So I just want to leave us with three quick phrases, kind of like what I did last week, to help us remember this passage. And then we'll be out of here. So number one, where you place your hope is imperative to your experience of joy. Wherever you place your hope is imperative to your experience of joy. Where I get that from? So we know that Jesus is God. We know that the word became flesh. We know that it dwelt amongst us, that he lived a, a life that you and I live, except that he did it without sin. Well, if we know that Jesus came in truth and in grace, then my question to you is, where is your hope placed in? Because if it's not placed in Christ, you're not going to find that joy. You know, the holidays, I like to tell people, sometimes the holidays feels a little bit like a hustle. Because everything is great, everything's fine. Christmas morning, you get the gifts. It's awesome. And then... Everybody leaves, and it's back to the real world. And that hope is now, well, the reality is, is it's all gone. For some of us, we don't like the holidays 
Because we have to be around people that we're trying to avoid. It's stressful sometimes. It's hard sometimes. And for some people, we put all of our hope in the things of Christmas, in the gifts, in the presentations, in the food, praise God, right? In all those things. But the problem with that is that if you place your hope in things that can't hold it, you're going to find yourself in life with anxiety, with frustration, and with sadness. Because they're not going to hold up to your expectations. It can't hold it. Why is Jesus the only one that can hold that weight? Well, because he's God. He's the creator and the sustainer of all things. So regardless if I have to hang out with people I can't stand, and I got to lock myself in the bathroom for an hour, or regardless if I can't find the gifts people want, or regardless of me like hoping that everything goes great in Christmas, but then it falls apart. Listen, regardless of what the holidays give us, my hope is in Christ. My hope is in that baby that came in the manger. My hope is in the cross. All those things will hold steadfast. It will not fall or crumble. So what is your hope in today? And if you say Jesus, then we got to talk about what that looks like for you. A lot of people know what to say, but is it really him? So you have to believe that Christ is who he is. And when you place your hope in him, you will be saved. That's where you put your faith in. So depending on where you put your hope, it's going to be dependent on how you experience joy, especially in these holidays. You know, I'm glad Stephen mentioned that. You know, like Christmas, a, a, a weird statistic about Christmas is that the holiday season, we also find the most suicides when we talk about mental health. Why is that? Because false hope, amongst other things. But we got to make sure we put our hope in Jesus. And when you do that, you will truly experience complete joy. Number two, some for us to remember, Jesus knew what he was buying on the cross. Jesus knows, and Jesus knew what he was purchasing on his cross. So if we know that he, think about that, that he, he dispenses grace. He knew our sin. He knew that we were going to turn our back on him. He knew that we would promise things and continue to fail over and over and over again. He knew all of that stuff and he still went to the cross to die for you and me. He took our sin. Think about it. He dwelt. Like, he, he lived amongst us, so he got to see a brokenness. He got to see a broken world, and he still fulfilled the will of the Father. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he went to the cross. And then the last thing I'll say it's simple. Jesus is God. Period. So simple, but yet so difficult for some people to comprehend. Guys, Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus lives and rules and reigns, not just today, but for all eternity. Jesus died, was buried, and he rose again so that way you and I could be free from our sin. 
Jesus is Lord. He is God. He is reigning and ruling. The enemies are his footstool. And one day we're going to be with him. And the Bible also says that if you do not claim that Jesus is God, when he does come back, it says every knee and every tongue will, come, will bow and confess that he is Lord. So whether you're going to do it because you want to or whether you're going to do it because you don't want to, you're going to do it. It'll be better not to be forced. But Jesus is God and Jesus is Lord. You know, um, last night was something that was pretty cool. Um, Elena, when Elena was born, we had a baby shower at, at one of our older churches. And these ladies would give Rachel these gifts. And one of the gifts that was given um, for Elena, we actually gave it to her yesterday. So think about it, like we held on to this little bag for eight years, eight years, and, and Rach held on to it. And what it was, it's her first Bible. It's a pink, precious moments Bible. And we held on to it because we wanted to wait till she could read. You know, you have your kid Bibles with like pictures in it, and, and th that's important. Like, we, we want her to understand this Bible. But this one was, was special. It's pink, had her name in, uh, engraved on it, cool pictures, and, and we gave it to her. And she was so excited, it was so happy. And as, as, as her and Rach were celebrating it, and me, I just kind of took a step back, and I was like, man, this is crazy. But I remember telling her, I was like, Elena, this is your Bible. I know, I know, like, we take it for granted. Like, I could go to any store and buy a Bible. But, but this Bible, we were like, the more you learn how to read, we want you to read this. And, and the more you read this, you're going to learn about Jesus this Bible is the story of Jesus, and everything in this Bible is true, and everything in this Bible is going to give you life. It's going to lead you. It's, it's going to create guardrails. Like, like, I'm telling her this, and she's looking at me like, I have no idea what you're talking about, because I was, like, all emotional. I, I, it was just one of those moments as parents that you're just like, wow, like, this is, like, really cool, but I remember giving her the Bible, and I was like, Elena, this is, this is the story of Jesus. And he's the one that we serve. And, and the, the, more, the better you are at reading, you're going to read this book. And, and you're going to know more about Jesus. And my hope as a parent is like, man, because everything in life. You know, I was like thinking about this. I was talking to Rachel about like everything in life. Elena could get into the greatest university. She could get a full scholarship. She could, she could make the soccer team. She could be in a ballet company. She could, she could do whatever she wants to in life, but nothing in life is as important as her knowing the one true God, and his name is Jesus. Everything else is insignificant. Who cares? Who cares if she could kick a ball? Who cares if she could dance? Who cares if she makes the team? Like, if I got to choose between my kids serving the one true God 
and being able to kick a ball, guess where I'm picking? And I think as parents, we, we've got to kind of rearrange our priorities in life. Who cares if she misses a practice or a dance recital or, I mean, my kids do ballet. And we have got to fight that because we're like, no, you got to be perfect because everybody's watching you. But in the span of eternity, what's going to impact our lives the most is not what it looks like to do these extracurricular activities. In the span of eternity, it's going to be about her knowing the one true God and his name is Jesus. And if she could get this right, if she knows Christ, if she's able to seek first the kingdom of God, then the Bible says everything else will be given to you as well. If she gets this right first, everything else in life, God is going to take care of her. God is going to show her where to go. God is going to open doors. God is going to bless not just her, but did you know blessing has ripple effects? Did you know that? It's not just God blesses my life, but because of me, God utilizes other people to pour into my kids. So he has to bless others. Guys, it's a ripple effect. And I think sometimes we miss it. So I kept telling her, I was like, Elena, this, this word of God, get to know it, read it. Like, the more you know how to read in school, the more you're going to read this thing, and the more you read this thing. And my prayer is that one day she falls in love with Jesus and surrenders her life to her. And I know if she does that, everything else will take care of itself. So, so mom and dad, I just want to charge you today. Don't, don't let this fall by the wayside. Pour into your kids. Do devotionals with them, even if they don't know how to read. Even if you ask them, I ask Livy, like, Livy, what do you want us to pray for today? We say, what are you worried about? And then Livy looks at us, and she's like, the trampoline. <laughs> I'm all expecting some all spiritual. And then it's like, Livy's five. And she's crazy. So, <laughs> but what we're doing is that we're setting a standard and we're setting a precedence for my family. That this is what we're going to be doing. You might not understand it. You might fight it. You might fight me one day. But you're going to thank me later. Because knowing Jesus is the greatest thing in this life. Because he's God. We pray for us and then we will worship. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for everything. Thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for pouring into our lives. Thank you because you are absolute truth and that we are able to find comfort in you, Lord. And we thank you for your wonderful and perfect word. Lord, I just want to lift up all the moms and dads in this house. God, that you strengthen them, that you give them what they need, that you sustain them. Father, that you bless them in everything that they need. Father, whether they are caretakers, whether they're grandparents, aunts, uncles, that you help us to understand the importance of leading our kids to your word. So that way they could see the greatness of who you are. 
and that it will impact their lives. So Jesus, we thank you for everything and we pray that you continue to use us to move the gospel forward. In your name we pray all these things, amen. Let's worship together.